to love the God and to fear the flame and to burn the crowd that has a Another edition of the Great Lakes Divide podcast brought to you by the Record Lounge in Rio Town. Those are the sounds that you hear. That's on Washington, the east side of the street. Rio Town Marketplace, front and center, right in the front display. You walk right in and take a journey back through time. Heather Frary and her crew will help you out, select the perfect gift for that special someone. And the Record Lounge is here to help you with the very latest in new vinyl and all the all-time classics that... Tom Crawford and our next guest enjoy as well. Hi-fi stereo equipment. John U. Bacon, our special guest, of course, award-winning author, and he was featured in the very latest documentary on FS1, Divided We Stand. John U., thank you so much for your time as always. Hey, Ryan, my pleasure, of course. Absolutely. And take us through what uh, that documentary was like, putting it together, being a voice on there, and, and just what went into the production from your end. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, obviously Matt Engel and uh, Kevin Shaw did the all the heavy lifting. Those are the great producers behind it. They've done great work for BTN and others, including Fox. Uh, my job was simply to sit down and talk for two hours, which I do plenty of times. Uh, so at that point, of course, you have no idea what they're going to use or not use. So you always have to fit on pins and needles when you're waiting for it because you talk for two hours on tape. Anybody, if they want to, can make you look like a jackass. So I was thrilled that they didn't uh, that was good um and of course i thought they did a fantastic job with it it was it got below the surface it got beyond the games it obviously focused on 07 the d'antonio era basically to the present um had be d'antonio era and the car rich rodriguez and hoke and harbaugh era so there's four coaches to their one during that stretch um but it was uh, fun i thought it was often funny and they got a lot of great uh, great guys to help out with that story john it's tom here you know um I, you did a terrific job and i am sure you're they they carved to you know two hours they whittle it down to certain amounts of stuff and jack Evling was on was for an hour our mutual friend and my former <laughs> colleague and um but but i i guess i'm going to be candid with you i was a little disappointed i, I thought it was slanted heavily to mark d'antonio i thought it was mark d'antonio coronation i didn't like the devin gardner role i thought it was uh, he was almost like a sparty slappy and to be honest with you i'm really surprised there was no focus they talked about Abling talked about the fact that you know michigan state hates michigan because you know because uh, michigan that try to keep uh, Michigan State out of the Big Ten, but there was no reference to the 1973 the the, the infamous vote following the 10-10 tie, which was a huge part of the rivalry. So, a little disappointed, even though you did a terrific job on your role. Well, I appreciate that. Um, of course, of my two hours of blabbing uh, on camera, there not to be using <laughs> the TV show itself, and of course, you know you're going to get far less than that. But they use me plenty. I can't complain. But, uh, but I talked a lot about the history of this rivalry, which goes back to before Michigan State actually was um, a school. Okay, Michigan wanted it badly uh, to, be, to include the agricultural college at U of M. When they didn't get it, they were ticked off. And the insults toward Michigan Agricultural College started before there were any classes. So that was that. <laughs> and then, of course, as you point out, 18, or 1953, uh, Michigan State gets into the Big Ten over – Fritz Chrysler's best efforts to keep them out of the Big Ten, which, of course, they were well aware of. Michigan declares that, that year that they win the Paul Bunyan Trophy. Uh, they wouldn't even pick it up. Uh, of course, they lost anyway, 14-6. to six. Uh, But it goes on like that. And, of course, 73, Michigan State gets their revenge. 
with the uh, the 10-10 tie vote, of course, which sent Ohio State not to the Rose Bowl over Michigan. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, I would have loved to have seen them. I know time is tight, but I would have loved to have seen them spend at least five minutes on the history because that gives the D'Antonio era a lot more gravitas, if you will, if you know how deeply these feelings go on both sides. Um, that, I think, is a fun thing to, to get into. Um, furthermore, of course, I think what they did do a better job of, a uh, good job of, um, was how it always goes back and forth. When Mike Hart says, little brother, uh, he says that after D'Antonio says a moment of silence. Trust me, that got right. back in Ann Arbor, of course. <laughs> um, and uh, they were well aware of that. So in most cases, it's, man, the, the punching back and forth has been nonstop. These are, these are truly two brothers going at it. And whenever one of them punches the other, the first thing the other guy says is he started it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're right. usually right. <laughs> John Ubacon joining us from the Starbucks in Ann Arbor, appropriately enough. And, of course, the rivalry he describes, the backyard brotherly rivalry, is the basis for this podcast, The Great Lakes Divide. Divided We Stand was the documentary on FS1 that he was a part of. Of course, joining Tom Crawford, yours truly, Ryan Schuling. Now, uh, John Yu, if Michigan State is kind of little brother, and we'll, we'll go back and forth on that, how would you describe then the rivalry between Michigan and Ohio State? Uh, that is, that is what, I guess, cousins, <laughs> <laughs> um, they have far less in common. And in that sense, it is, you know, the axis of evil is how both sides see it. That's more cold war stuff. I guess, there you go. There. If, if you got the backyard brawl, that one's the cold war that, uh, you don't quite come to arms, but you have the surrogates, of course, the hockey teams, the astronauts and whatnot who fight your fights for you. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of love there between Ohio State and Michigan, whereas I got plenty of Spartan friends. You probably do, too. Um, and before Michigan-Michigan State games at East Lansing or in Ann Arbor, you'll see plenty of green and blue you know, tailgating together in their little tents and whatnot. You almost never see that hmm. uh, with Ohio State and Michigan. You almost never have any friends down there <laughs> and vice versa. Um, so I do from the media, of course, and I'm sure you guys do, too. Um, but the average fan is not going to have friends down there. Or vice versa. So I think that is a far more cold-hearted uh, rivalry in some ways. Um, I think, though, well, on the grand scale, and I, this is a point worth making, and I think they made it, if memory serves, in uh, Divided We Stand. Um, the Michigan-Michigan State rivalry is greatly underrated. The intensity on the field cannot be beat, and I think it deserves more national attention. You know, John, uh, I think there's a huge uh, – you make some great points about the contrast in the two rivalries. I mean, Michigan-Ohio State is – and, and I'm saying this in the – you know, I, I know I'm coming from a Michigan perspective here, but I very much compare it to Oklahoma and Texas, the Texas OU game. Texas is kind of like the more of the submissive, you know, maybe the, maybe you want to call it arrogant type of fan base who doesn't like to get into the, you know, the hardcore bantering and bashing and, and you know, jumping on beer cans and being abusive and dropping F-bombs and, and, and trying to beat up people, uh, you know, like, like Ohio State, you know, they're the abrasive NFL crowd, very much like the old Philadelphia Eagle fans at the vet or Oakland Raider fans, and they come up here. And you'll see it Saturday. You and I will be in a box, but, I mean, it's you know it's all around. They're more of an attack mode. It's just more important to them, more life and death, more get-a-life mentality, I think, than Michigan has. And I think that's that's why they, they'll have more fans. I mean, Michigan has virtually no fans when they go to Columbus. They don't want to put up with the physical abuse. It's almost like their fan base has intimidated the Michigan fan base out of an equal rivalry type of thing. There's some truth to that. And what I said in the previous book is that, uh, or no, in the current book, Overtime, here's my plug, yeah. Overtime, Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines at the crossroads of college football, been out for three months, bestseller, uh, that uh, 10% of Ohio State fans were raised by wolves. And <laughs> I've, talked to, yes. I, I've talked to friends down there, and they said it, that is a gross underestimation. Um, oh, wait, so friends of mine who went to Ohio State, so... I mean, I recall 10, 12 years ago, more than that, I guess, uh, President Mary C. Coleman at Michigan had to send Michigan's own police force down there to protect Michigan fans because the right. uh, Columbus officers and the Ohio State officers would not do that. They'd see them get abused in front of them and do nothing. So the list right. there was pretty long. Where you, I, I, I mean, I'm sure there's some animosity. I see it online between Michigan State and Michigan fans. I have never seen it. Uh, and at East Lansing or Ann Arbor, I'm sure it's happened. 
but I've just never seen it. And I've never really, I mean, heard from it directly from any of my friends uh, on either side. So I think the fans get along a lot better between Michigan and Michigan State than Michigan and Ohio State. I will say for Ohio State fans, the 90%, they've always been very good to me. They watch BTNs. So they mm. will stop in the parking lot. I've never had a problem. Uh, quite the opposite. They've been quite good. The 90% I know that are quite good fans, they're always apologizing to the 10% who are raised by wolves. <laughs> um, so there's that. But on the field, man, on the field, Michigan-Ohio State, they say there's almost never any trash talking. Oh, it's clean. Any, yep. It's clean, no cheap shots, no trash talking. Michigan State, man, there's very little animosity in the tailgates. There's a whole lot on that field. USA Today columnist, and she has Michigan ties, Christine Brennan, says the following. The Big Ten is at the vortex of so many issues in college sports, and Bacon expertly covers them all. Again, it's been out since September 3rd. That's overtime that, John, you just talked about. John U. Bacon, our guest. And again, you can follow him on Twitter for all the very latest at John U. Bacon. John, what does the U stand for? My middle name. Good luck. Ulysses. (laughs) Oh, I got one guess. Anyway, okay, I'll follow up with this. Uh, John, as far as this game, I know. It's always going to be a mystery. I thought I'd catch you at a weak moment here on Thanksgiving. (laughs) Nine-point favorites, the Buckeyes coming in. I think that's a lot of respect shown to Michigan. I don't know that Ohio State's been favored by less than 10 in any game this season. They take to the road to face that team up north, as they like to call them. Ryan Day's not even uttering the word Michigan. The fans online through Twitter like to... Uh, block out the M's with red X's. We know all that's going on right now in the lead-up to this game. Ohio State leapfrogs back to one after LSU had jumped ahead of them to one following the Tigers' win over Alabama. I find both moves to be kind of quizzical, although it'll sort itself out in the wash at the very end. So, John, I turn to this question for you. As far back as you can remember this rivalry, what a win on Saturday would mean for Michigan, however you define that, for Jim Harbaugh, for the program, for as long as it's been since Michigan's beaten Ohio State, for where the Buckeyes are right now in position to make the playoff, where would it rank in your eyes? You know what? It'd be right up there, which sounds silly on paper because Michigan is already out of the division race. Ohio State has already clinched it, so even Penn State is also out of it. And, of course, Michigan State, too. Uh, so, on paper, this is all about you know bowl games, and only Ohio State really has uh, you know, Big Ten or national title hopes on the line here. And yet, I, my sense of it right now, given this, you know, pretty, uh, pretty horrible, hell, century so far for Michigan football and the house that rivalry, 2-17 and 17 so far uh, during that stretch. Mm. Uh, this might be second only to 1969, uh, 50 years earlier, as far as setting up off the next era. And I think that if Harbaugh pulls us off and the Wolverines pull us off, I think this will resonate. you got the number one team. They're undefeated. Ryan Day's first year. And I bet at that point, this thing is back on. So, I mean, it's not been that far off in a lot of these games. Um, I think it is. it has to be the most important. Uh, maybe 95 with Lloyd Carr. When he is in his first year, uh, they're 7-4. and four. Ohio State's number one. they got Eddie George, Heisman Trophy winner, all this stuff. That certainly gave Lloyd Carr a lot of breathing space. Uh, let's give Jim a lot of breathing space, too, although I don't think he needs much with the AD Ward manual. But, uh, man, it's right up there, and as crazy as it sounds, I think Michigan's got an excellent chance on Saturday, despite what you see on paper. You know, John, 93, uh, 93 95, 96, all those three games, uh, Ohio State was the one, two, or maybe even three ranked in those teams. Uh, two were in Ann Arbor, one was in Columbus. I was at all three of those, including the 13-9 win in Columbus in, in 96. And I kept thinking at that time that uh, it was a psychological thing. It was just, uh, you know, uh, Michigan was in Ohio State's mind rent-free, and they couldn't get over that. Now I feel like Michigan, you know, has Ohio State in their head, and they and it's not so much a physical disparity between the, the two teams or coaching for that matter, and they got the home field. Do you think there's a psychological element is that we're not be able to – we're not supposed to be able to beat these guys, you know, 14 out of 15 and seven in a row. I think that's a whole lot of it. I think that, and hit the nail on the head there, Tom. I mean, obviously in the time that Trestle, since Trestle got to Columbus, they've had only two coaches until this year. So that's stability. That's excellent. Those are two future hall of fame coaches, obviously. Uh, well, Michigan's had a revolving door there for a while and you can't 
has sustained excellence like that, three- and four-year stints, obviously. That's a big part of it, and yada, yada, yada. But I think another big chunk of it is the psychological hurdle that you mentioned, and I'm reminded of Bo in the ball games. Uh, I think that uh, he, you know, obviously he beat Ohio State his first time out, 69 against Woody. At that point, there's no voodoo against Ohio State. You know, it's back and forth for 10 years. Um, but in the case of the Rose Bowl, he missed his first one due to his first heart attack. They lose 10-3, to and they keep on losing. They lose seven straight bowl games before Bo finally wins one in 81. And then he goes 5-5. Five and five. So I think that's what Harbaugh needs. He needs one. Once you win one of these things, it goes from you're not playing ghosts anymore. It's not voodoo. You're playing football. Just a basic, simple, straightforward, high-stakes, granted, football game. And, and if he does that, of course, then now you're Ryan Day. Okay, great. You're 11-0, but you lost to Michigan. Hmm. And now the monkey's on his back. Um, and he, he did not get to carry Urban Meyer's record over, even though he's on that staff. So one win, and all of a sudden the tables are turned very quickly. John U. Bacon joining us, of course, award-winning author, New York Times bestseller, and overtime already in that category. Be sure to find it online, your favorite online source. Maybe a good Christmas gift idea. There, I'm pitching it for you, John U. How about that? Yeah. Overtime. <laughs> Brian, for you. I agree with you. How about that? <laughs> you don't need any help, Brian. I, I'm just offering it as a good friend oh, and hey, compatriot. Tom, Tom, I got news for you. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> but again, you can find it Amazon, anywhere online. Just search for John U. Bacon and overtime. Uh, Speaking of which, John, you you were, in my opinion, the foremost authority in terms of the history of Michigan football, dating back, of course, to the Bo Schembechler era and even before that. But what is your favorite Michigan-Ohio State tale, your favorite story that you've uh, encountered across the years and maybe one that people don't know a whole lot about but you can fill in the details on? I'll give you one since you asked and I've got no prepared answer for this, but a few years ago, uh, Mike Lantry, the old kicker, of course, from 73-74, who set all Michigan's records despite those last two games kicked, although Bo always maintained that he made the one in 74, and many would agree with that. Um, he yeah. got together about six or seven Ohio State guys and six or seven Michigan guys from the Bo Woody era. We're talking about you know, Bob Thornblade and uh, guys like that at Michigan, talking about Archie Griffin, uh, John Hicks uh, at Ohio State, Tom Skladaney. These are great guys and fun guys. We got together for an event, and I spoke at this event. Only about 15 of us total. Um, man, the respect between those guys was infinite. Dare I even say affection once the beers are getting going around. Uh, and the stories were remarkable. And you see that, and you realize, man, the, the downside to a rivalry like this is not you know losing a bunch of games. It's not getting to be a part of it. And how many other college programs in America would love to have be a part of a rivalry like Michigan and Ohio State, where every year you know the nation's watching. Uh, And games you'll not forget the rest of your life. So that, to me, is one of the more fun nights I've had as a sports writer. Um, A a night I will not forget. You know, John, last question for me. I'm curious uh, on this, these kind of intangible things. As I was at the 69 game following the 50 points that that Ohio State served up to bump Elliott's team down in Columbus going for two and all that nonsense. And Michigan just just playing, you know, just sheer will uh, had them beat this greatest team since the Minnesota Vikings. I mean, they're saying they could be the caliber of the Minnesota Vikings. You remember all – or you won't remember it, but oh, I'm, yeah. I'm older than you. But, I read but, but my point is this. The Greg Madison variable – and, and the reactions from certain players like Carlo Kemp, Aiden Hutchinson, and the animosity, the hurt, just the frustration, even back to spring ball, how much of an um, emotional factor can that linger three hours and carry them through, or does that fade away a couple series? Uh, and that's rivalry. Hell yeah, Ken. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, man, the kerosene's already on there. The, the bonfire has been stoked. Uh, it does not take much to keep this, you know, this thing burning. Uh, so I missed their comments, by the way. I saw some guys said a lot of respect and so on. But it sounds like Aiden and Carlo were, uh, were upset about this. I've been traveling. The U is not silent, and you can read more about it <laughs> in overtime. The book now currently out since September 3rd. And follow him on Twitter at John U. Bacon, of course, New York Times bestselling author, public speaker, etc., and guest, of course, of the Great Lakes Divide podcast. Into Christ, the cross.
Welcome once again to the Great Lakes Divide podcast with Blue Ellie Tom Crawford. I'm Ryan Schuling, and we appreciate you listening. And again, our sponsor is the Record Lounge in Rio Town. Heather Frary and her group ready to serve you all kinds of latest and greatest vinyl in-store, ready for the Christmas and holiday shopping season. They're located on Washington, just south of 496, downtown Lansing. They'll be on the east side of the street. That's in the Rio Town Marketplace. And they have hi-fi stereo equipment as well that's been checked through an electrical engineer and ready to go, ready to work, good as new. That's the Record Lounge in Rio Town. Former Chicago Tribune sports writer and editor who's written a book about the history of the Big Ten. We covered two of those teams right here, of course, Michigan and Michigan State. And you can find it online, Big10Book.com. Now, with the cooperation of Commissioner Jim Delaney and all the conference schools, it's a new coffee table style book that details the complete history of the Big Ten through compelling stories and vivid pictures. Again, that website, Big10Book.com. You can follow our next guest on Twitter at Sherman underscore report. He is Ed Sherman. Ed, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Ed, uh, Putting together a project like this, it's a big undertaking. Tom and I have a colleague of ours who you're probably familiar with, Jack Ebling, who has done similar things on the history of the Big Ten and its member school, Michigan State. But what led to the genesis of this idea for you, and how did it all come together? Well, first, since you brought up Jack, uh, Jack's been a great friend for a long time. We start talking about how long we've been doing it together, and it gets a little scary that the numbers are getting this high. (laughs) But... um, Jack is actually in the book. He wrote a uh, guest I prevailed on a bunch of my people I know who've been longtime Big Ten writers, and uh, Jack is in the book. He wrote a piece on uh, Tom Izzo, kind of his perspective on Tom Izzo. And then from the Michigan perspective, longtime the Michigan writer Steve Kornacki, who's working now for the Michigan uh, website, uh, wrote a book about uh, his perspective of covering that 1989 national championship team and kind of how crazy it was. He was the one who actually told Steve Fisher that uh, that Bill Frieder was going to Arizona State, <laughs> and uh, you know that's how he learned and how Steve Fisher's life really turned around at that moment, and we know what happened from there. Um, so you know when you start doing this book, uh, I, I kind of had an idea of how I wanted to do it. I wanted to write about the athletes. Uh, you know, there's so many great athletes in the Big Ten, obviously from the Michigan and Michigan State era, and I, so I, I knew I wanted to do a, a state uh, a, a section on iconic athletes and tell those stories and you know when you have um and coaches i'm sorry athletes and coaches and so you have obviously from michigan you have uh tom Harmon and and charles woodson and and bo schembechler doesn't get much bigger than those three guys and then michigan state uh highlighted uh magic johnson and uh and tom Izzo, who's just you know as an illinois alum you know to think that you can go to eight final fours and you know, in, in the 24 years when I've had two in my whole lifetime, it's kind of staggering for me. Uh, so, uh, you know, so I started from there, but I also wanted to get, I think the one of the things that we wanted to try to book do in the book was kind of detail how the Big Ten became the Big Ten. I mean, this is, it was the first conference. And what stands out is that they they really did set the standard, have set the standard in college sports because they've been first with so many things. They were the first conference back in 1895. Uh, that they came together, they met, and they formed this conference as a way to try to get their arms around this new thing called college sports and put some rules in it. Um, they were the first conference to uh, uh, have a tie-in with a bowl game, and the Rose Bowl has been, uh, Jim Delaney says, it's their most important partnership, uh, and that's been huge from an exposure and uh, standpoint on January 1. You think about the first conference to really that what getting back to Jim Delaney, the expansion of Penn State, adding Penn State. They were the first conference to really make that bold move. And now since then, you know, it triggered this whole that was the first domino to fall. And it really triggered this whole uh, new map, geographic map of college sports. You wouldn't even recognize it compared to what it was 1990. And then you look at the Big Ten Network. I mean. Uh, I write about the a long section about how that came about, and Jim was pretty good telling the backstory. And it really, only, it wouldn't have happened if ESPN had given them a offer a better when they were up for contract renewal in the 2000s. If they hadn't, if they had offered a contract that uh, you know terms that he would that he liked, there would be no Big Ten Network. But they, he kind of felt a little bit uh, underwhelmed by their offer. And uh, he said, you know, I'm going to try to do this. They, 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 I mean, they pretty much laughed at him. I said, good luck with that. Who's going to watch a, 
a network based on one conference, and we kind of know the rest of that story. And now there's the SEC network and ACC network. Texas has their own network. I mean, again, but nobody's done it as well as the Big Ten. So that's kind of where I came at it, and, 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 and it worked out very well. He is Ed Sherman, uh, formerly in the Chicago Tribune as a sports writer and editor there on Twitter. Once again, at Sherman underscore report. This is big is the name of the book. And of course, it's in that logo font of B1G signifying the Big Ten. It's available now online. You can get it directly, Big10book.com. Ed, something you mentioned there, uh, a real seminal moment for the Big Ten was the addition of Penn State that you point out in the early 90s. They were the 11th team. Now, there was talk at that time, at least as I recall, that Notre Dame was the target to be the 12th team. That never came to fruition. There have been other attempts and flirtations in the past to bring Notre Dame in, both geographically and as a an academic institution. It makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. As you go back to that moment in time in the Big Ten's history, why did it not happen, and why has it not happened to this point? I think uh, very, very, it's very easy. Their, Notre Dame wants their independence in football. And, and, and as long as they still have schools to play, teams to play, they're going to remain that way. You know, I think if they, I, I don't, I just, it's pretty simple. I mean, they, they were not willing to join a conference and give up all those national games and their national network. And they wanted to kind of have their cake and eat it too, I believe, which they do right now in the ACC. Uh, you know, they play, they're in the ACC for, uh, a lot of their sports. Notre Dame's actually in, obviously in the Big Ten for hockey. Um, uh-huh. and, um, cause that makes a lot of sense for them, but, uh, uh, you know, they just will not give up those, those, uh, their football independence. And they have now, they're now they're playing a bunch of ACC teams. They've kind of given up, uh, their regular games against Purdue and Michigan state and Michigan, uh, in exchange for uh, games, I think aren't, aren't nearly as attractive, but, uh, they want that, you know, that network and that independence. And that's, and so that's why that deal fell through. Um, you know, ironically, that they were actually wanted to be in the in the in the Big Ten in the 1920s, and I think that uh, the Big Ten at that point, the schools did not want any part of Newt Rockne. I don't, you know, they 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 were a little leery of what he was doing there, and uh, and so uh, kind of uh, they had their opportunity back about a hundred years ago, and they didn't take it, and so. You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, th- I, I think we go going forward. I think there's going to be a shift with the the map again. Probably, you know, will the Power Five conferences kind of consolidate, kind of break away, and you know, and consolidate their power, and and maybe break even away from the NCAA. And what would that leave a team like a uh, school like Notre Dame? So I think it's still something to watch. But uh, for right now, uh, you know, they have 14 schools, and one of them isn't Notre Dame. Yeah, Ed, I'm curious to know about the the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. I know you have an eight-page section on that rivalry alone. Uh, you know, obviously the 69 game, which I attended as a 13-year-old kid. I'll never forget wow. that game. But has this rivalry, though, I mean, how is that? I mean, that's a great capsule of that. But then where where are you at right now with the rivalry right now? Is that, Are we just looking back historically and that rivalry is not where it is in football when you consider 15 out of 16 for Ohio State and eight in a row? Yeah, but you know, okay. So I wrote about eight pages. I wrote about the rivalry and the and that '69 game. I make the argument, and I think a lot of people agree that that '69 game was the most important game in Big Ten history. And for this reason, it's launched the beginning of the Wood, Woody and Bow rivalry, the Ten Year War. And that Ten Year War, I still think, has extended forty years. And in, in that, it gave it. It really still is the identity of the conference. Um, it's the conference. If you ask somebody when you, what you think of the Big Ten, I can almost guarantee Woody and Bo's names will be mentioned among the first five or six names. You know, it's the conference of Woody and Bo, conference of playing hard football, grind it out, um, tough football. You know, every time there's an Ohio State-Michigan game, we, you just see multiple pictures of Woody and Bo. And I think that identity still carries on to today, even though <clears throat> I'm sure Woody and Bo um, – probably would be spinning in their graves if they saw the basketball-like scores of the recent games. I mean, it's crazy, you know, 50 points. I mean, I think I saw that in the entire time Bo played uh, Ohio State and during the 10-year war, I think they gave up 100 points, and they've given up more than 100 points in the last two games to Ohio State. So obviously they wouldn't recognize that rivalry. But um, 
hey, listen, I think these things go in cycles. I mean, there, I covered the Big Ten a lot during the late 80s and in the 90s, and uh, Michigan loved a certain coach named John Cooper who could never beat them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, and it's also, for the most part, these games, even though they've um, – They've, Ohio State has won. They've been pretty interesting. Maybe not the last. I mean, the first half of this year's game was pretty good. Um, you know, I mean, and I, I went to a game. I think it was an overtime game. It was 42 to 40 or something in, in Ann Arbor a few years ago uh, that Ohio State won in overtime. And so I think these things go in cycles. Obviously, Michigan has, you know, Ohio State's got it running right now. I mean, they're getting all these great players and they, that they have a – they have uh, they have everything, all the tools, and, and Michigan's going to have to try to catch up. But I wouldn't. I, I, I'm careful to say that the rivalry isn't the same. I think the rivalry still. And here's the other thing: when I can, the rival, I mean, it's always among the highest rated, if not the highest rated, game of the year. Uh, it was, I think, it was number two this year, regular season game this year, by an Alabama LSU. So the game really does generate an interest, and so I think even though Michigan fans haven't are very happy with the way it's went in the last uh, 15 or so years. It does. I think that it does go in cycles and I would expect it will turn at some point, hopefully quicker, you know, obviously Michigan fans, hopefully it turns much quicker than, uh, than uh, and it, very fast because I'm sure it's not easy for them. It is big 10 book.com where you can find it. This is big. If you got a big, big 10 fan in your family, be that your father, your brother, your sister, your mother, your daughter, anybody connected to uh, the big 10 is going to appreciate this book and its history, the rivalries. It's rich. There are photos in it as well. Uh, a quick question along those lines. Ed Sherman is our guest. He is the author of this is big. How that all comes together, Ed. I mean, there are a lot of people that go into putting a book together. Uh, it's your idea. It's your baby. But then you need help. You need assistance. You need a publisher. You need to procure photographs and things of that nature to kind of help tell the story. How did you yeah. go about doing that? Well, initially, I went to the Big Ten, and I said about two years ago, I've had a relationship with them for Jim with 30, for the first day from Jim Delaney in 1989. So we go back 30 years and mm-hmm. some other people there more than that. And uh and so I said, you know, I, I realized I saw that there really hadn't been a comprehensive history book written on the Big Ten, and there's so much history in this conference. And and I've lived, been a, been around for a lot of that, uh, as, you know, as, as, as a fan, as a student at Illinois, as someone who covered it, and continued to be a part, right, you know, as, as a journalist. And so they were very excited about the idea. Uh, I think, in part, you know, I, uh, Jim Delaney knew he was kind of um, coming at the time. He knew it was kind of coming to the end of his tenure at uh, the Big Ten. So I think this was a way of also kind of being able to write about some of his accomplishments, and which are considerable. Uh, I don't think there'll ever be another commissioner that uh, spends 30 years at one conference, uh, one quarter of the history of the Big Ten. And so they were all in, and, um, you know, they basically – um, decided that they wanted to publish the book um, at, a, at some at, at a certain point, so they're the publisher, and they based in, in the schools. Uh, they went to the schools and said, you know, please provide Ed with all the photos that he needs. And this is, I they gave me total probably more than two thousand photos to pick from, and the wow. photos were so spectacular. There's more than three hundred photos in the book, and originally the book was going to be about two hundred fifty pages. And we had so many great photos that it's now 350 pages, hmm. 352 pages. And the photos, I think you'll see, we kind of did these photo montages to kind of break up the sections where you talk about uh, big colors. We had great photos of just the colors of, you know, in the stands and big fans, uh, you know, uh, to looking at the fans kind of getting into it and and um, got a great picture of Bill Murray at a cheering at an Illinois game, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, very animated and uh and big bands uh, got a great picture of both Michigan State and Michigan, and these are two, you know, uh, two-page spread type pictures. So again, we wanted to try to use the pictures to kind of evoke the feel and the and, and what it's like to be part of uh, to have that Big Ten experience and the culture, and what makes it unique. So. Uh, I think, you know, again, you can read this book. I also wanted, I did 80,000 words of type, so there's plenty of words to read. And, 
and because I wanted to tell stories. I didn't want it to read like a Wikipedia-type entry. Hmm. And so I do try to do some storytelling in there. So you could read stories, but if you simply want to pick up the book to look at the pictures, I think you'd be pretty entertained. So kind of tried to do both, and hopefully, you know, we pulled it off. And uh, again, I think if you're a Big Ten fan, if you're a Michigan fan, Michigan State fan, there's a lot of content about both schools and in the book. And uh, but it also kind of it's interesting to kind of see where they all fit and and how those you know especially those two schools are very prominent in the history of the Big Ten and how it all fits in the whole context of the Big Ten. So, hoping people will pick it up and. As you said, it's a great gift, and we've got a lot of people who are giving it as gifts. And uh, as I've been saying, you're one click. If you got if you got a sports fan, you're one click away from getting a, a nice gift for your favorite sports fan. Yeah, really streamlined presentation too at BigTenBook.com. You can get it right there. Ed Sherman, our guest. One last thing, of course, Ed. Our podcast focuses on the rivalry you just touched on, Michigan, Michigan State. We call it the Great Lakes Divide here between Tom Crawford and myself, and the history of that rivalry and how far it goes back. And when Michigan State was joining the Big Ten back in 1950, that there was some animosity there. Michigan blocked that. Michigan State returned the favor in the early 70s when there was the vote amongst the conference schools who would right. go to the Rose Bowl. Then, of course, you go through the Fab Five era and Tom Izzo recruiting, thinking he had Chris Weber and Jack Ebling, I'm sure, speaks to that in this book as well. And then the whole Mark D'Antonio, it's not over, it'll never be over. As you kind of reflected upon that particular rivalry in more detail, what stood out to you? Well, I think what stood out is obviously the first – you know, the, the, I do a I do an entry in the in the timeline section how Michigan State joined the conference in the, in the late forties after the University of Chicago dropped out, and President John Hanna was very much wanted uh, Michigan State to be part of this conference knew it was a necessity you know and uh, and he um, obviously did face that opposition from Michigan at the time and he had to really go to a a backdoor play so to speak and and and, and uh, lobbied some of his other friends, including a president of, I believe, Minnesota at the time, who was kind of instrumental in making this happen, because uh, Michigan didn't want they they, they 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 wanted to have the whole state for themselves, and uh, and uh, it, it, you know, and obviously the Michigan State joining the conference and, and having the huge success right off the bat, um, you know, really helped. It was a great move for the Big Ten, and obviously it was it's very instrumental in the progress and development of of michigan state and it goes again to show how how these presidents used sports it's interesting how the presidents used sports to increase the profile of the university and how that still functions still remains today um you know so it's a great rivalry i mean you're right down the road for each from each other and uh i covered a bunch of those michigan state michigan football games really enjoyed them in the 90s and you know it's a, it's something that's going to continue for you know forever i mean just the proximity of the schools i mean i think that's one of the things that kind of makes it fun is that we have these rivalries that we can get excited about a game no matter kind of what the records are and um and that's again part of the you know it's not just michigan michigan state obviously ohio state michigan you have wisconsin iowa wisconsin minnesota uh, Indiana Purdue. I mean, there are a lot of different great rivalries. Uh, Indiana Purdue in basketball. It's pretty intense there too. So, uh, a lot of great rivalries. <clears throat> and so, I think that kind of also adds to the fabric of this book and the fabric of the conference. It's a great conference and a great book. If you want to check it out, Ed mentioned it's over 350 pages, rich with illustrations, pictures as well. This is Big is the name of the book, the complete history of the Big Ten available now. This is easy and quick. Go to BigTenBook.com. It's all you got to do, BigTenBook.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Sherman underscore report. Ed Sherman, longtime sports writer for the Chicago Tribune, editor there as well. Ed, great talking to you. Thank you so much, and best of luck with the book. Well, thanks. You guys have been great talking to you. Anytime, let me know. And uh, always like talking Michigan, Michigan State. It's a, it's a lot of fun. A lot of great history there. Ed Sherman joining us here on the Great Lakes Divide. And to love a God and to fear a flame and to burn.
joining us now from the Detroit Free Press, writer Sean Windsor, who I've known for several years, used to come on my old show, The Shuling Report in Lansing, and I think wrote maybe the most important piece we'll see this entire sports season from the fall going into the spring, the storyline surrounding Cassius Winston. And the article is entitled, Michigan State Star Cassius Winston's Grief is So Heavy, Not Even Basketball Can Ease It. You can find it at Freep.com online. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's good to be with you. Now, this is a story I felt was important to be told. I'm glad you're the one that told it, but it couldn't be easy to tell. And what you had to do going through the timeline of recreating exactly what happened and when and who found out about the news of Zach's tragic passing and when and how that information was relayed to Cassius Winston and how the team is dealing with it even still to this day. Take us through your process in crafting this article and what went into it. Well, to be honest with you, it started the night of the Duke game, which I was at in uh, in East Lansing. I had not seen the team play live since the opener at Madison Square Garden against Kentucky, and so I you know watched them on TV and and kind of watched the body language of Cassius and the team and so forth. But the night of the Duke game was different, and I, at first I thought maybe it just was the difference between being uh, in person and being on television. But I leaned over to a colleague at one point, and I I told him I felt like a voyeur, Ryan. Like I was almost at this, uh, what was Cassius's body language was so um, unsettling to me. It looked like he was, he should have been somewhere privately grieving. Instead, he was wearing a pair of shorts in front of 14,000 people or 15,000 people or whatever. And it, it just felt a little uncomfortable in a way. And a colleague next to me has been with the team this whole time. said, well, this is kind of what he's been going through. But I, I just thought I saw a little something different. So after the game later that night, I asked, uh, Tom Izzo, if we could talk a little bit about not just Cassius necessarily, but what was going on with the team, how much of the issues were basketball on the court, how much of it was Cassius, and what he's going through, and the death of his, the suicide of his brother. And so he said, sure. So a few days later, Ryan, I get up there, I'm in Tom's office, he just wants to talk off the, he just wants to talk off the record. Because he feels like anything he says will sound like an excuse, and it'll either put too much pressure on Cassius, and it'll be at the expense of him, or it'll, it'll make it sound like he's looking for ways to explain the few losses they had, especially the way they played against Duke in that loss. But at the end of the conversation, we talked for half an hour. He's got to go out on a recruiting trip. He says, look, give me a couple of days. I'll figure out a way to talk to you on the record. I've got to figure out what to say and how I want to say this. And maybe Cassius is ready to talk. So that's how it really started, Ryan. A few days later, I go back up. Cassius agrees to talk. I, I wasn't thinking about that at all, to be honest with you. And it's just me and him in Tom's office, and he just kind of opens his heart up, and uh, and that's where it started. Sean, it's Tom. You know, first of all, I want to commend you on the article. I mean, I had to read it a couple of times because there was there was so much really riveting content in there. But speaking of that Duke game, the thing that struck me when when, when – Cassius is looking over and not seeing his mom for that first time and the impact. And I understand totally why she wasn't there when she explained it, that burnout of people coming up to her and that sensory overload. And it just, which just wears you down. I mean, that to me was almost that, that, that told the whole story of how much impact that had on him. And, and did you kind of see that kind of, uh, kind of, kind of a lossful look, you know, on the floor when you were watching him in that Duke game, Sean? I did. I did, Tom. And I couldn't figure out it, um, exactly what it was, but it just looked a little different than the grief you could see he had been playing with already, right? And it turns out he found out his mom wasn't going to be there during the National Anthem, or right before the National Anthem, and his dad told him. And so it's not just that he's counting on her presence. It's, it's not just the, the, the pain of that. It's that then he, he's worried about her because she just lost her son. And it's one thing to lose a brother, but it's another thing to lose a son. And Cassius is very aware of that. And he, and the role he has in his family, is all like the role he has in that team, right? He, he's the center of it in a way, even though, I mean, it's not that he's the mom, but so he's worried about, is she okay? He's like, he doesn't care about playing Duke in that moment. I mean, that's why Izzo said, uh, and Cassius kind of admitted a little bit, but Izzo said, look, I could see him looking over there when he was dribbling. You know, normally in good times, he looks between stoppages and play, a timeout, whatever, and he'll just kind of, you know, because he's very close with his family, but he just wasn't there, and you could you could see that, and it's very understandable why. 
Sean Windsor joining us from the Detroit Free Press. And this is an issue, of course, that goes back to just before the game against Binghamton. And Sean outlines that in his article, the decision by Cassius Winston as they went into the overnight hours the night before the team's, the team's staying at the Kellogg Center as they do right before home games, gathering and discussing this and, and whether or not he was going to play in that very first game. And you think about the fact that this grief of losing his brother comes in waves and he's dealt with it every single game since, including the Duke game that Sean talked about that's kind of sparked the idea for this article and all the way through this past Wednesday night's game, the 77-72 win at Northwestern. But let's go back to that Binghamton game as you pieced everything together, Sean, of what happened in that timeline and, and the, the chaotic nature of what must have been going through Cassius's mind, scrambling, coping with this fact and, and this initial stage of grief. My brother's gone. How do you come to terms with that? How do you acknowledge that happened? His family shows up. I mean, just take it from there, if you will, and, and what led to Cassius actually playing in that game against Binghamton? Well, I think the instinct is um, certainly for athletes and, and maybe for a lot more of us in a moment of of grief, maybe in the, even in a moment of shock, which is surely what he was in, right? They were all in shock, this, the, the way that happened. That um, you, you're, you're, There's a certain amount of adrenaline. And if you think about it, so Kat, they found out, I don't know, midnight, right around midnight, maybe a little before midnight the night before. It was a Saturday, and they were at the Kellogg Center, the hotel where the team stays on the weekends for home games. So they're up till – so Izzo and Mike Garland, assistant coach, are, are in the lobby with the parents and Cassius' girlfriend, I think, and uh, and the younger brother, Kai, who also played at Albion College, who'd driven up with an assistant coach. So they're all there sitting on the floor, not in chairs, by the way, not in furniture, but on the floor, and which, I, which, I, which is a very powerful thing if you think about it. You want to be – at that moment, you kind of want to be next to the earth, right? You don't even want to be propped up by a chair. That's how out of body, what kind of out of body experience you're having in that moment. In any case, there's only at four thirty, but I don't think Cassius goes to bed. So if you think about that, he he hadn't slept, and 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 it, he he kind of thought maybe a, a brief r- r- escape would be to try to play, and when you're you have that much adrenaline going through you anyway. That's kind of how he got through it. Izzo had encouraged him not to play. Told him if it were him, he wouldn't play. Or at least he didn't think he would play. But he, went, he didn't want to make that decision for him, so he left it up to him. And I think Cassius being Cassius, he felt like he maybe not owed it to his team. They surely would have understood. But maybe for his own peace of mind, thought that was the place he needed to be. He found out fairly quickly that's not where he wanted to be, but at least that night against Binghamton, that's where he wanted to be, and that's why he was there. You know, Sean, I mean, I think I've realized more this year than ever how much of an integral part or the, the core piece Cassius Winston is on this Michigan State basketball team, All you know, the 10 deep or whatever it goes on. It seems to me they kind of look at him, uh, every, you know, maybe this has been part of the struggle with this team, Sean, is it? They they look at, at at Cassius and read off him. What's he going to do? And, and and do I have, is it you? Should I make a move? Because this is his team. I think the fact that Sean or that Sean that uh, Cassius was hurting that bad affected the play of the rest of the team. Don't you? Oh no question, absolutely. And the coaches will tell you that because they're not quite sure how to. They're not quite sure. They were at least for the first couple of weeks. They weren't quite sure how to coach the rest of the team, let alone Cassius. Right? Yeah. And the rest yeah. of the team didn't know how to act to him, around him. And every time he walked in, and I wrote about this, every time he walked into a film room or a, or a practice or the dining room table or wherever, it, he, it would get quiet. Whatever chatter he, the locker room, right? Whatever chatter he heard, it would kind of go away. And he knew why. And, and as tight as they are, and it's, he has some really good relationships on that team, but they're all, t- they're all close. You know, they're still nineteen twenty. We, you know, at our age, it's not easy to know what to say in that situation. Right. And so they didn't know what to say, and um, and that and that affected everything. And you're right, people looked to him, but but the whole the whole team hadn't been quite the same. Now they're getting a little bit better. You can see that. There's but there and there are also some basketball issues they have to work work through that are separate from this, including Aaron Henry, who's got his own pressure of you know trying to get to the NBA that he's dealing with, which is. You know, that's what he's struggling with. But, but no, it all, Tom, to your point, it all starts with Cassius. 
Sean Windsor, Detroit Free Press. The article, if you have not read it, I implore you to do so. Michigan State star Cassius Winston's grief is so heavy, not even basketball can ease it. You can find it at freep.com. Sean, kind enough to share some moments with us about writing this article, the aftermath of the article, and the takeaways that you had. Because, Sean, as a writer, I mean, you have an idea, a concept. Like you said, you're sitting there at the Duke game. You know, this is a story that needs to be told, and I think I want to tell it. You go to Tom Izzo. He formulates how he wants to tell this story without compromising maybe some confidence confidences in Cassius and, and not making excuses in Tom's mind. I can totally hear Tom Izzo saying that about their struggles this season when they have come up. But in walking away from that conversation with Cassius, the one thing that stood out to me in the quotes that you pulled, and I'm so glad that you chose to do it the way that you did, Sean, and that is let the quotes tell the story. There's nothing else really that can, that can pull that narrative forward as much as Cassius did. And it kind of goes back to your point about Cassius's mom, the sensory overload of people with good intent coming up and saying, hey, you know, we're thinking about you, we're praying for you, you know, if there's anything we can do, and it was just too much for her, it seems like Cassius kind of experienced that same thing, that people come up, they want to comfort him, they think they know what he's going through, but they don't know what he's going through, and he made that point to you. What were your thoughts about that? Well, he did, and I think he's absolutely right, and let me share this with you real quickly. So, that day in the office with Cassius, I interviewed, and well if you want to call it an interview with Tom, but I, I talked with Izzo first and we talked for a while and then he left. Um, I, he went outside in the hallway because I think Cassius had come over at that point. Right. So he said, let me go get him and we're going to talk for a couple of minutes and then I'll send him in. So I'm in Izzo's office by myself for three or four minutes. And for the first time in a long time in my career, Ryan, I have a pit in my stomach. I was, wow. I was anxious. I was, I was, yeah. I was anxious. And, and Cassius is somebody I've talked to, on and off for uh, for three years. He's a great quote. And, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say he's a great quote. He's just a really thoughtful human being. Mm-hmm. And he's really smart. And he sees everything. And in any case, and, and I have a relationship with him. So, but still, so I'm feeling this. And what I'm asking myself, this is what I was asking myself. I know everybody says to him, I'm sorry for your loss. That's probably the first thing they say to him or something along those lines. And I'm thinking, do I want to say that? Do I want to <laughs> be part of that is that how i want to is that the first thing i want to say to him when he walks through that door in a minute or two and i decided i didn't i didn't want to do that i just said hi cassius and we talked and we and we just kind of started talking and then he started talking and telling me what the quote you're referring to and that part of it and when he was done saying that i told him about my own struggle before he walked into the office and I said, look, obviously, you know, I mean, didn't say obviously, but of course I'm sorry for your loss. And, and we talked it through, and then that led to some more interesting conversation. But, um, but, but, but I was sort of relaying the struggle, the little struggle I had. I know, like, we talked about his team, his coaches. He said he can't sleep. He goes to bed every night and he, trying to figure out how to talk to Cassius and coach him mm. and navigate this with him, you know. I mean, and and I experienced that for 30 seconds on my little level of, you know, outside the program. I can't imagine what that's been like. So that's kind of what, yeah, Cassius was uh, was really, really smart in talking about it that way. And, and I eventually figured out, last thing, Ryan, I eventually figured out I needed to get the heck out of the way. You know, normally I want to write my own words and because I feel like I could describe or say what I want to say. It's a little more precise and I don't normally have that many long quotes. I like quotes. Obviously, you need people's voices. But uh, but he was so powerful and raw. It took me a while. You know, I spent a few days working on it. It took me a while to figure out, just get the heck out of the way mm-hmm. and let him speak. And, that, and that's yeah. why the way it ended up. You know, Sean, your transparency, I think, cued, it kind of opened up his heart to you. I think, I think that's that was, that was really a good way to go on that. You know, I want to talk about the – the Northwestern game with Cassius Ben. I think Izzo talked about this post game about it was kind of Cassius back to being Cassius. And, you know, 37 points, he had 21 points, or, or, or 37 minutes, he had 21 points, he had six assists. I mean, he still, there's still a couple turnovers there. Um, there, But did, did you see him, and I know it, as Ryan said, it's going to go in waves. There's no question about that. But did you see him getting a little bit back to more normal Cassius in that win over Northwestern? Yeah, and he shot the ball a bit better because his legs were a little bit better. In fact, when he went one for nine or whatever it was against Oakland uh, several days ago, when was that? Maybe over the weekend. And that post game yeah. press conference, you could hear Izzo when he was talking about the one for nine. You could hear him start to say something 
And he stopped himself. And what he was going to talk about was he's not sleeping and he doesn't eat and he hadn't been lifting. There's a reason for this. But again, he didn't. You could you go back and watch it. You can. He bites his lip, and he and he should because he didn't want to put that pressure and he didn't want to sound like he's making excuses. But I thought against Northwestern, you know, because he's sleeping a touch better and he's starting to eat a little bit more and he's getting up extra shots a little bit. I mean, it's slow, but and I, I thought you could see that at Northwestern for sure. Sean Windsor joining us, Detroit Free Press, a 77-72 win for the Spartans over Northwestern on the road, probably tougher than it should have been, but we're hearing the reasons why, and that this is a process of recovery for Cassius, and he's still on that road to get back to who he was and where he was, and he, he won't ever be totally the same person he was before he lost his brother, Zach. One telling exchange, though, and this was on television as I was watching the game, Sean, and you might have seen it either during or after, is the banter, the exchange between Tom Izzo and Cassius himself after one of the plays they got a little heated they got into it and then Tom kind of nodded gave that kind of knowing look and like okay well you made a pretty good point and put his arm around Cassius and that dynamic uh, of leadership between Tom Izzo on the sideline Cassius Winston being Tom Izzo on the floor it's different I'd like you to explore that a little bit more from your own perspective and vantage point because we see the kind of similar personalities that Tom Izzo Martin Cleves were that even Tom Izzo Draymond Green were Cassius is not wired that way he's different they have a very close relationship Cassius is much more calm how would you describe that relationship between Tom Izzo and Cassius Winston well I think in some cases Cassius is a teacher and Tom will, uh, Izzo will tell you that and he he, he relishes that and, and he uh, let's put it this way this is so on a basketball team at this level the assistant coaches usually divide up the day-to-day responsibilities they're going to work with the point guards the bigs or whatever right and they kind of player by player, groupings of players. Winston's the first player that directly reports to, I don't want to say reports, but works with Izzo since Mateen. So it's the first time he's had a, had a player, right? So that, that tells you one thing. And another thing is that um, Winston knows how to settle Izzo. Yeah. Right? And, and <laughs> he, just, he, just does. He, he, he just does. He knows how to quiet his mind a little bit. He's like an Izzo whisperer. <laughs> and, Izzo, and Izzo knows how to right. Izzo knows how to. Izzo knows that Winston wanted to be pushed, and Mike Garland has helped a lot with that too, right? Just to get a little bit more serious because Cassius plays with so much joy, and that's just how he lived his life. And you remember as a freshman, and so Garland has really helped a lot with that too. But but Izzo um, wants to push him, and that's what's been tough about this is he he hasn't felt like he could. But he knows at some point he's going to need it. He's been trying to figure that out, and I think you're starting to see that. And I think that was what you were witnessing the other, the other night. Is the relationship settling not back because it's going to be a little bit different? Because Cassius isn't going to be quite the same. Nobody is after that kind of a loss. I mean, parts of you are the same, but you change how you see the world a little bit. So, but they're going to get into I hate to say new normal, but that's kind of what we were seeing the other night a little bit. Uh, the the comfort level, especially from Izzo and pushing and prodding and poking his star player, and Winston being engaged enough to turn around and meet it, with just as much force in his own way. And we started to see that a little bit more, as, as Tom pointed out, and as Sean just alluded to in that game against Northwestern with a couple of tune-ups, Eastern-Western, for Illinois and Michigan to start the new year and to get right back into the Big Ten schedule. Those will be two tough games, and we'll see charting from here where Cassius Winston and this team goes. It's uncharted territory, maybe for any team in the country, to deal with what they're dealing with. And again, a phenomenal article written by Sean Windsor, Detroit Free Press. Michigan State star Cassius Winston's grief is so heavy, not even basketball can ease it. We'll hope that with the addition of basketball back into his life, his family, his teammates, those that really care about him, that Cassius, of course, can recover because he's a remarkable young man. As Sean has painted such a great picture, both in this article and in our conversation today, he's going places, whether that's on the court or off, and both definitely going to be the case for him. Sean Windsor, Detroit Free Press, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much, Ryan. Take care, Tom.
So that'll do it for us from here for now. Again, uh, sponsored by the Record Lounge in Rio Town. For Tom Crawford, I'm Ryan Schuling. The sounds that you hear come to us each and every time out from Heather Ferrari, her great staff. Check them out today. They'll even give you a special consideration for mentioning this podcast, The Great Lakes Divide. Just give them a wink and a nod, and we'll see what Heather can do for you. Again, all the latest and greatest in vinyl and all the all-time greats as well. And they have the equipment to play the vinyl records. If you're like, where do I get a stylist? Where do I get a phonograph, record player, a sound system, a high fidelity stereo from back in the day? They've got that all for you there as well. All the collectibles you could possibly want and what they don't have for you, they'll special order it 24, 48 hours the turnaround time there. The Record Lounge in Rio Town. Have a great weekend, everybody. All is quiet.